So take your Bibles and turn to Daniel chapter 4. We're going to be finishing uh, part 2 of what we began last week. Uh, If you weren't here last week, we learned about a king whose name is Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, throughout history, you can track this back. This is not just a Bible story. This is real history. And uh, the fun thing about studying the Bible when you have historical books like this is it's, it's history with a capital H because it's written in the Word of God. This is history that is uh, trustworthy and true in a way that when you turn the History Channel on on your TV, it's not, right? This is God's Word preserved and written. King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, a very pagan king, a very dark kingdom, um, hauled off God's people out of Jerusalem, and Daniel was one to be uh, hauled off at the very beginning, 605 B.C. And God called them to be faithful to him uh, and to not compromise, and Daniel was among a very small number of those who stood tall and would not compromise. He also was given great position in this government as he was faithful to the Lord and the Lord confirmed his word. Uh, he advanced up through the government, a lot like Joseph in Egypt. I mean, you see, you see similarities of faithfulness and God's promotion, even in a pagan land. So Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. No one can in- interpret it. And Daniel is brought in and he tells the king the dream. The, the dream is this. There's a great tree. And the tree is personified as King Nebuchadnezzar. And the call is, cut down the tree, but leave the stump. For seven years, have the stump be bound with a band of bronze and iron, preserved and yet humiliated. And after seven years, the tree will sprout again and be returned to glory, even a greater glory than before. Well, the king is like, well, it's it's a dream. So he brings in Daniel. Daniel says, it's you. So repent, king, repent. If you turn from your sins, it may be that God will relent from this disaster that he's bringing upon you. Let's see how it goes, okay? So we pick up in verse 28, and uh, I titled this, The Prison of Pride. The Prison of Pride. This is Nebuchadnezzar's greatest problem himself. He is, he is absolutely impressed with himself. He, he walks in a, in a house of mirrors. He loves to see himself, his glory, his renown, and he is truly imprisoned by pride. Verse 28, all this came upon the, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar at the end of 12 months. Now stop right there, just, just pause and consider this. It was 12 months earlier that God gave the dream and its interpretation. And it was clear as day. King Nebuchadnezzar knew this is what the God of heaven, the most high God, has declared for him specifically. But he lived a week and it didn't happen. And in a month, and he thought, he began to think, well, hey, you know, maybe I just keep doing what I do. It would be so easy for King, the king, to have concluded this. Oh, I just, just it was a silly dream. Whatever, it's not a big deal. God must have forgotten. Looks like I got away with it. Oh my goodness. How often do we think similarly? Well, there's no consequences. I mean, I wasn't struck by lightning when I did that. So maybe it's not that big a deal. And I don't see other people being struck down by fire from heaven. So maybe... 
God doesn't mind these sins. Maybe it was just an empty threat. Maybe God's like a parent who says, don't make me count to three, right? And then it's like four, five. Maybe he's just up there and he's just a big, soft-hearted, warm, fuzzy guy and his threats are just hot air. That's not the God of the Bible. You've got to know that. This is an age-old error, and it is in us to, to think the same way. Well, if I am not under his wrath today, it must be that I won't be tomorrow. Twelve months, think of this, a full year he allows to go by while the king picks up the mirror all the more. And his heart, whatever may have been on the radar initially, he is, he is long past that. And he is full of himself like never before. The mirror is up and he is very impressed. Not giving glory to God, not turning from his sin, not turning from his pride. He is truly imprisoned by pride. God's patience and his appointed time. Some people say, well, you know what? From the beginning, things are continuing on as they always were. The sun comes up in the morning, sets in the evening, and the world is full of sinners who seem to be getting away with things. So why should I worry? Why, why should I care? Why should I concern myself with repenting of my sins if all around me there's a world filled with people who seem to not be in trouble for anything they're doing? Don't take the patience of God as him playing light with sin. His patience is kindness. He withholds his wrath out of the goodness of who he is. But his appointed time will come. We read this in 2 Peter chapter 3. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, with the Lord. One day is as a thousand years. Okay. Just stop and consider what's being said. Our God, who, by the way, is not constrained at all by time. He, he created time. He can enter into a day in such a way that it is to him as a thousand years. That's one of the ways you understand his glory, his greatness. He can go moment by moment through the day. You've seen those movies where everything slows down and the person is running around, moving things around. No, all the more so with God. There's no constraint on him. A day is as a thousand years, but a thousand years is also as one day to our God. He is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish. Do you want to know the heart of God? God's delight is not in bestowing wrath and sentencing to the fires of hell. His heart is for salvation and repentance. He loves repentance. He loves salvation. He is not a God who, who just sits up there and just is like, I can't wait to judge. I can't wait to sentence to the fires of hell. No, that's not our God. Does he? Yes, he does. Every day. He has already dozens, countless times, already in this day, there have been people sentenced to the fires of hell. But his delight is in salvation. 
What is his desire? That all should reach repentance. Now, before we conclude that God is up there just observing and hoping we save ourselves, what do we know? Is everyone saved? No, not everyone is saved. So there's something that God wants more than that all be saved, and that is his glory. His glory be displayed, both in the fires of hell and in the glories of mercy and kindness in heaven forever. And so he ends with this, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. What does that mean? It's going to come when people don't expect it to come. He is going to come and he is going to judge. And why 12 months for Nebuchadnezzar? I think exactly this, same God. The same God who says in the days of Noah, when you're eating and drinking and, and marrying and, and you're not worried about anything at all, you're not listening to the preacher of righteousness who built a boat in the middle of nowhere, then comes the rain and he kills them all. Same God. He is a God who will judge. He is slow to anger. He is not one who, who delights in judgment, but judgment will fall. And when he says it will, you can guarantee it's coming in his appointed time. So 12 months, he accounts, to give patience and kindness to a godless and pagan king who is imprisoned by pride. And then the sentence falls. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar at the end of 12 months. He was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. Now, isn't this set cool? Isn't this awesome? I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm in a castle. And, and here he is. He's up on the roof now of his royal palace. Think opulence, uncompared opulence. Just mind-blowing riches and, and, and wealth and all of the buildings. He's a builder like Herod the Great. He loved to build. He loved to create. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty. It's scary to even say words like that. Lord, you know I'm just reading your word, right? Man, who in the world does this man think he is? Look at what I have done. Look at what my hands have created. This is my work. Now, it was spectacular. Here's an artist's rendition of what Babylon may have looked like at its high point. You have a, a 300-foot-tall ziggurat where they would climb to the top and worship the gods. Extremely tall and impressive. You have the, uh, the Ishtar Gate, which is spectacular, blue. In fact, to this day, a reconstruction of that, I think, is in Germany or something. Uh, they have it in a, in a museum piece. And so these gates, the ramparts and the walls were wide enough at their top that you could run a, a four-horse chariot back and forth and turn around with no problem at all. 20 to 25 feet wide and multiple walls, okay? So the, the fortress of Babylon has been built out, and it is spectacular, it's impressive, it's intimidating. In the middle of it all, for his wife, he built 
one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the hanging gardens of Babylon. So you think all of the work of bringing the water in, the pools, the channels, the irrigation, and in a very dry place, as we know, lush gardens growing everywhere. People regarded this the world over. Still to this day, they regard it. And he sits back and he says, as he takes it in, he says, listen, my hands did this. Now, ironically, the predecessors that came before him did a fair amount of it. He, he built it out, and he may have perfected it, but he didn't build all of it, but he takes credit in front of his, his kingdom. Look at what I have done. My intellect, it's my mind, my building, uh, in, 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 like, I came up with this, I have assigned this, it's my wealth that paid for this through the victory of, of my power through military conquest and keeping the peoples down. Through the consolidation of that power, I have built a place big enough to house the glory of my majesty. Hmm. Prison. Prison. He is imprisoned and he thinks he's free. Friends, that is so true for so many in our world. And left to ourselves, that's exactly where we would be. We are blinded by pride, blinded by self, blinded by sin, absolutely entrapped in the worship of me. Me. It's all about me. You exist for me. Compliment me. Make much of me. Tell, tell me how great I am. Prison. Enslaved to self-exaltation. Now, it takes a variety of forms. It can take the form of arrogant boasting. It can take the form of, of absolute pity party. Woe is me. It's all about me. It can take everything in between. Sometimes it's subtle. Oh, it's subtle. Sometimes it's just without words. It's just one of these. I really am something. Look at what I've done. All of us have to battle this, my friends. You know, one of the most dangerous places for pride to find expression is in the church. I mean, like when you, when you serve the Lord, but really you're serving so that people will tell you how awesome you are. When, when you do something and you look around like, did anyone notice that? We serve God. We serve God. If we are enslaved to self-exaltation, even our works of, of service in the church will become about us. And we'll miss the whole point. And wood, hay, and stubble will burn every work done for self. It won't last. God is not impressed. What does he love? He loves his glory. He loves when we do things for Him, for His glory, because He is great, we serve. The worst kind of thief is one who steals that which is most valuable, Kevin DeYoung says. It's true, isn't it? You could walk in and steal a Snickers bar out of someone's kitchen, 
Or you could walk in and steal the Hope Diamond. The difference between those thieves is uh, not necessarily skill, it's consequence. The, 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 the thing that is stolen that is most valuable brings the heaviest consequence. The worst kind of thief steals that which is most valuable. What is most valuable to God? Have you ever asked that question? What does God prize above everything else? If you say you, you're wrong. <laughs> Don't say me. The radio might say that for you. The radio would be wrong. God prizes his own glory more than anything else. The most valuable treasure to God is God. He is the most important, the most valuable being, and his glory that displays that, he treasures. And he says, I will not share that with anyone. So if you take glory from God, you are a thief. And you have stolen that which is most precious to God. The Hope Diamond has nothing on that. That's why this is a big deal. Even for pagan kings. Don't miss this. Here are all these Jews who have been hauled off as slaves to a pagan land. And there's a pagan king who is behaving in pagan ways. And he is held to account for stealing the glory of God. And trying to hold it himself like like sand, it'll fall right through his hands. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. What does that mean? What does that mean? I mean, do you, do you, do you get a bunch of money and you, you buy the materials and they all arrive at your property and you sit back and you put a chair out and you're like, okay, Lord, here we go. We're going to put this verse to work. And then you wait. No, you build in his strength. And when you're done building, who gets the glory? How was it that you built? You built through the skills that he gave. How was it that you built? You built through the, the finances he provided. Who is the builder ultimately then? God. God is the builder. The giver gets the glory. That's the whole point. Those who set about building in themselves, for themselves, to make it all about themselves, build a veritable castle next to an ocean on the rise. <laughs> it's, it's a sand castle. He's going to wash it away. You know what's ironic about Babylon? It's rubble. It's a heap. They're, they're digging out and excavating. And what's even more impressive, I read just early this morning that the bricks they're finding from Nebuchadnezzar's time, they're all facing down. That's interesting. They all have his name stamped on them. They're all in, like every brick, King Nebuchadnezzar, King ne and they're all facing down. It's interesting. Not sure why that is the case, but it certainly echoes the statement, if you build your house for your glory, God will oppose you. If you live your life to build your kingdom for, for you and it's all about you, then you will trust me. You will be opposed by God because you are in prison and he loves you too much to leave you there. Hmm. Either he will come with a swift hand of love and discipline or he will come in wrath. Let's look at this, the love of God's discipline. The love 
The love, know this, the love of God's discipline. Verse 31. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. Okay, first of all, voice falling from heaven. This is probably an angelic messenger because of the way this is worded. This, this is devastating announcement. This is, this is mind-blowing. All of this would have rushed back to his mind. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You're going to live in a field with, with livestock. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. This is a supernatural transformation. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And seven periods of time will pass over you. Seven years you will be like this. Until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Until you realize, no, it wasn't you. It wasn't your doing. It wasn't your glory. It was God all along. And so, you have a heavenly interruption with immediate judgment befalling. He's up on the roof declaring his own praise. And in that moment, God sentences him and judgment falls. Go on. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. He basically gave up on any form of self, you know, clipping of nails or caring for us. He was, his mind was gone. He became a veritable cow in a pasture. Now, I don't know about you, but when I see grass, I don't get hungry. <laughs> I mean, that's not food for me. The rabbits, maybe. I don't know. But uh, I, I always like the joke, uh, your food is my food's food, right? Like, I'm a meat eater. I, I like meat. Um, when I see that, I'm thinking, my food's food. Um, not, wow, I've got to taste that. So you've got to kind of have an imagination now. He's on the roof. This happens immediately. He begins, and, and no, one, no one gets in his way. This man has consolidated power. He does what he wants. He gets what he wants. And so he, all of a sudden, it's like, I want some grass. I've got to get out in that field. And whether he gets down on all fours or not, I don't know. How, when did that take place? What did it look like? But in any case, here, here goes the king out of his castle, out of his fortress, into the pasture lands, likely outside of the walls, right? This is outside the protection of these massive walls. And he gets down on his hands and knees, and he begins to just chew the grass. Now, humans can't live on grass, so God has changed his body to be able to process this grass and survive. Seven years of eating grass and sleeping under the stars without any covering. He is wet with the dew of heaven. And his closest counselors, those who are right there ruling alongside him and and helping implement his stuff, they're like... "Um, we got a problem. This is not okay. Like, this is embarrassing. See, it's not just embarrassing for Nebuchadnezzar. 
This is a global embarrassment. Everyone in his court is like, oh my word, what is he doing? Have you checked on him today? Same thing, same thing. Like he, he, is, he is just loving that grass. We're going to have to rotate some cows out of that pasture. He's eating it up, right? I mean, someone get a sprinkler out there. We, and, and, and you got to think as well, the, the army, they're like, well, we got to protect this guy. This, he's out of his mind. He couldn't protect himself if someone came after him. So there's probably some form of, of protection that's established for him. And just think, this kingdom, this is the pinnacle kingdom that is over all at this moment. Think of all of the opportunity now for attack, for, for inner workings. This is the time of, 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 the, of history when people were killed and, and assassinated constantly. So you don't know how this is going to play out. But Daniel does because these cords around the stump, they provide for this man. I mean, here's a picture of, of an artist's rendition of this. I forgot. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. Look, look at what it might have been like. Boy, that, I mean, I thought I had hairy legs. Those are some hairy legs. He just is out with the cows. It's a humiliation, but it's also protection. I think it's likely that Daniel was involved in this seven years of stability. God is able not only to put a king in his power and consolidate that power and, and have it be glorious, he is also able to keep that kingdom with the king as a cow for seven years. This also is supernatural. Sovereign displays of the Almighty God. He does as he wills. Seven years of humbling grace. Why seven years? You say, what? Why so long? How about seven weeks? Wouldn't that have been enough? Seven years? Well, the only answer I would say is that God knows exactly what needs to be in view. And he does his work individually. It's not just a, like a group you know, project. This is, this is an individual work. God saves individuals. And so when I think about your story, you think back, Lord, how did you save me? He did what needed to be done so that you would be brought to your knees to look up and cry out, save me. He does what is needed to bring his people in. And in Nebuchadnezzar's case, the man lived in a house of mirrors. And this Seven years of humbling grace was the love of God. It was the love of God for a man who was in prison to pride. He couldn't humble himself. He couldn't set himself free. Neither could we. Neither could we. Now, there could have gone another way. In the New Testament, we read about Herod Agrippa. Let me show you from chapter, uh, Acts chapter 12 what God did to this man, who lifted himself up with pride. On an appointed day, King Herod, that is Agrippa, put on his royal robes and took his seat upon a throne and delivered an oration to them. And the people, by the way, the people um, were lobbying for help from Tyre and Sidon, okay? They wanted something from this man. And so they shout, they shout, the voice of a God, not a man. They deify this king. And immediately, an angel of the Lord struck 
him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. (laughs) God can do that. Know this. Those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. He might humble you to the fires of hell if you do not turn to him and cry out. Pride's a big deal to God. Have you noticed that? Think of Ananias and Sapphira who came and they they had sold a field and they had kept part of the money, but they came in front of the whole church and they said, oh, you know, apostles, here you go. This is all the money from the field we sold. We're giving generously to God and and." Is anyone going to applaud? You know what God did? He struck them both down. Dead in that moment. What's the problem there? Pride. Pride. They wanted applause. All they had to do was tell the truth and give to the glory of God. Just give freely, joyfully. For it's about Him. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Sometimes... He takes the proud and humbles them to show his grace. Sometimes he takes the proud and judges them to show his justice. He is God. He is sovereign. Let's go on now and see how this story ends. I'm calling this the freedom, the freedom of humble praise. The freedom of humble praise, verse 34. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven And my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. This is a changed man. This is the man who introduced chapter 4, right, with the call to worship, not himself anymore. That was chapter 3. This is a call to worship the God of all glory. And so it begins there and it ends there. And he loves not just the God of Daniel. Anyway, it's not just your God. It's his God. He sees the God of glory. It comes out of this humiliation. It's the testimony of a grass eater. The testimony of a grass eater. Now, I I would love to sit someday and, and... Talk with Nebuchadnezzar. What was it like? Tell us the story. And then maybe sit down with Daniel. Tell us all of the things that took place during those seven years. How the Lord worked. How he protected. How he used you to keep stability. And and then what was it like when the king came out of the pasture? Right? And came back onto the throne. Given his right mind again. And restored to his position. And all he could do was sing the praise of a sovereign God. What was that like? The man has been humbled and set free. He's been set free. I lifted my eyes to heaven. My reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High. Now don't think this is cause and effect, right? He lifted his eyes to heaven because the time had been finished. This was the allotted time, seven years. At the end of seven years, God turned his gaze from grass to glory. It was God's doing. He all of a sudden looked at the grass and he's like, wow, what am I doing? I I got a mouthful of grass. What's going on? And as God brought his right mind back, he on his knees looked to heaven and began to worship. 
This is a man changed by God. He didn't change himself. He didn't save himself. He didn't do this. This is God's doing. I bless the Most High. Set free to sing God's praise. Oh, friends, why do we sing? You ever ask that? Why, why do Christians sing? Is that just weird? Is that just tradition? Is that what we do because that's how you know, you're supposed to do? You come to sing and then you preach. And, no, we sing because we can't not sing. That's the point. He has done this for us. We break into song. He is worthy. He saved us. We used to sing of us. Now we sing of him. That's what it means to be God's people. Worshippers set free. I have learned to kiss the waves that throw me up against the rock of ages. Charles Spurgeon said. You know one thing you don't hear from Nebuchadnezzar, what God sure embarrassed me, and I, I, I got a problem with that. Who, you know, who does he think he is? Seven years of humiliation, and he thinks that I'm going to love him after that? What kind of God would do that to me? He's, it's not there. He's not questioning the hand of God. He's not judging God or shaking the fist at the heavens. He is lost in awe at the kindness that God has done, as he said in the opening verses of chapter 4, for me. For me. Not against me. For me. This is how he saved me. I love this quote. I love this quote. When, we, when you suffer, when you are dealing with a, a heavy heart, when you're going through trials, listen, you're being loved in that moment by God. Kiss the waves, my friends, that bring you and even throw you up against the rock of ages. He is the one to cling to. He is the one you need. We're left to ourselves, we're adrift in a sea of sin and sorrow. But when God loves us, even with waves, to throw us up against the rock and give us grip to cling to Him, he is loving us even though the waves crash. He goes on, Nebuchadnezzar continues, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. Now, he doesn't say everyone else is accounted as nothing except for me. That's what he would have said in chapter 3 probably. All of y'all bow to me. Now he says all the inhabitants of the earth, are accounted as nothing. Does that mean God doesn't care for anybody? No. No. It's comparison language. In comparison to the God of all glory, what kind of glory do we bring? Nothing. It's less than a cigarette lighter held up to the sun. It's less than that. Or if you go to uh, this language that Isaiah says, let me read the rest of this. He, he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among all the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? He's God. That's what he's saying. Yeah, I mean, short. That's what it means to be God. He's sovereign. He's sovereign. Humble adoration of the unrivaled sovereign. Now, you know, one of the unique expressions of pride is this desire to be sovereign. We want to express our sovereignty, and that can find itself even in theology. 
right? You find, find expression. I, I want a theology that makes me really sovereign. And God doesn't allow for that, not in the slightest, not the tiniest bit. He is sovereign over all things. He is sovereign in suffering. He is sovereign in salvation. He is sovereign through all time. He is sovereign. And he's unrivaled. This is how Isaiah says it in in chapter 40. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastland like fine dust. All nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. How much glory do we bring to God? Nothing. We bring nothing. We, 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 We contribute nothing to the God of all glory. The only glory we have is that which has been assigned to us, instilled in us, created as those made in his image. We are echoes of his glory. He doesn't echo our glory. You ever gone to the ocean and and seen how vast that water is and then been like, you guys want to see how significant I am? And you step your foot in the water and expect it to rise. Guess what? Nothing happens. You're not that big. That's what King Nebuchadnezzar in his humility is saying. (laughs) I used to think I was something. Now I realize I was less than nothing. I was building a sandcastle this whole time. The God of all glory, it's his kingdom that is glorious. He is the one who deserves all glory. We are significant because of God. Whatever, Whatever worth or value we have It is not intrinsic. It is bestowed. It is given us by God. He's the source. We are those who receive. There is no one like God. He does as he pleases. No one can stop him. And no one can judge him. You know what's so weird about people that take issue with God? I got a problem with God. I just got a problem with God. What standard of judgment are you going to apply to the judge of all the earth? It's silly. It really is. Are you going to to judge him by the standard of him or by the standard of you? How silly that would be, wouldn't it? He is the bar. he, He is the truth. Every truth claim is judged by him. Every ethical claim is established and therefore judged by him. No one can judge God. You can't question his work. You can't say, how dare you, or, or I disagree with you. I, d- I don't think you should have done that. No. goes back to Romans 11, 33 to 36. Who's ever been his counselor? Who's given to him that he would be indebted to us? No one, ever. At the same time, Nebuchadnezzar says, my reason returned to me, and, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me and I was established in my kingdom and still more greatness was added to me. Now, where did that come from? He knows now all of that was from God. And all it did was stir the pot of a greater passion to praise him. Everything that was given back to him, now he understood, oh, this comes from you. You took it all away to show me that you are the giver. You are the one who has done this. And like Job, he was restored. He was restored. 
Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven for all his works are right. They're righteous. And all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Right? He, he can be like, take my word for it. He can do that. Take the testimony of a grass eater. Seven years. Don't walk in pride. All his works are right. Do you believe that, Christian? Do you believe that? Do you love that about your God? All his ways are just. Everything you read in the scripture is not just true. It is worthy of praise. God is glorious in all that he does. Hmm. Restoration praise is in view. It's one of those things that shows you not only can God save, but God can establish. God can give a platform of praise. He can build glorious things, but as he does, the the goal is, is key. It's for his glory. You know how long Nebuchadnezzar lived after this? Not long. Not long. So just think, he wanted his kingdom to endure forever and his glory and all of that. The Lord saved him, rebuilt things, and then brought him home. Took him home. It's probably good because he may have messed some things up. And sometimes we do. But there's grace. There's grace. God is gracious and kind. His love never fails. The giver gets the glory. That's the key piece of this. God is sovereign. He is the giver. And he is to be glorified. Friends, take it to heart. How do we respond to a, a story, an account like this? It's really a call to worship this morning. Well, this is an appropriate response from the Psalms. Psalm 115, verse 1. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. We join the chorus of heaven and we say you are worthy. Ascribe all praise and glory there. You are glorious. You are worthy. And we join the song. So the question is this morning, my friends, are you walking in self-exalting pride or are you walking in God-exalting humility? The contrast could not be more stark. The way you seek to live your days could not be more different. When your business succeeds, your response is going to be altogether different. When someone comes and says, I really appreciate what you did here, how you hear those words is totally different when you walk in God-exalting humility. Friends, we are on our face before this King. We are not worthy. It's one of the things the kids needed to hear very clearly. This was God's grace that came and reached in love to send His Son to come and rescue us from the darkness that we were in because of our sins and release us from the impending wrath of God that was upon us and release us into the freedom of worship of a God of all glory. I would encourage you to turn from your sin and run to Jesus Christ. Repent of pride. Don't live in it. Christian, here, if you are already saved and you've trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, there is no place for pride in our lives. Go to war with pride. Go to war with pride. And delight 
in the glory of God. Every knee will bow, every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's coming. The question is, will your knee bow today, or will someday, maybe even from the fires of hell, will your knee bend and your acknowledgement come? I pray that today, in His grace, God would bend your knee, stir your heart, open your eyes, and save you powerfully so that you would know what it means to praise Him and be set free from the house of mirrors, the prison of pride. Let me close with this. Psalm 2, verses 10 and 11. I say this to all in positions of leadership in the church. I say this to all in positions of leadership in our nation and everything in between. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise and be warned. Be warned. What is that? That's love. That's love. O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice in trembling. Kiss the sun. Bend the knee. Kiss the sun. Lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. It's coming like a thief in the night. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. That's the way to end it. Right there. There is blessedness, happiness, joy, satisfaction, forgiveness, grace, kindness, and mercy, eternal life for all who take refuge in the King of Kings. His name is Jesus. He's made provision for you on his work on the cross. He's paid for all the sins, for all the sins of everyone who trusts in him by faith. Run to him and bend your knee today. Turn from pride and be set free to worship forever. Let's pray. Father, we confess the instinct in us is to self and not to worship you. We are wired to worship, but oh, we fill our worship with all kinds of sandcastles. We spend our days building earthly kingdoms, and oh, God, forgive us. We turn from those things, and we turn to you, the one who is worthy of the praise of every single person on the face of this earth throughout all time. You are the satisfaction we are longing for. It's you. It's always been you. You are the God of all glory. Open our eyes to see your worth, your value, your kindness and love. Oh, help us to esteem you, to honor you, to worship and ascribe to you all glory and praise. We delight in you, O oh God, your people here today, made your people through your Son all of grace. We don't deserve it, but here we are. And we sing, we sing because you are worthy and we have been set free to rejoice in you forever. Be glorified, O oh God, we pray today in Jesus' name. Amen.